the full context in verses 10 through 17, even though our focus for this morning is really going to be on verses 14 to 17. So turn your Bibles to Ephesians 6. We'll begin in chapter 10. Hear God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your powerful living word. Thank you, God, that you give us words like this to equip us, to outfit us, to prepare us. You don't leave us unequipped. You don't leave us unprotected. You don't leave us alone. But you equip us through your word. Lord, thank you that you've given us armor, your divine armor to protect us. Thank you, God, that we have no need to fear any principalities or rulers or wickedness in high places. We have no need to fear the evil day because you have given us the armor of Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us understand, help us apply your word. Lord, help us be not only hearers of your word, but doers as well. God, I pray that you would give me grace as I speak and give grace to all who hear that you would open up our ears and enliven our minds and open our hearts to receive from you. Holy Spirit, we need you and we ask for you to come now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a long time ago on June 6, 1944, there was a strategic operation. It was called Operation Overlord. It's kind of an intimidating name. Appropriate name for our passage, really. Operation Overlord. It began when 160,000 Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy, all essentially within a short period of time. They were supported by almost 200,000 naval and air forces. It was the largest, most overwhelming force in the entire history of war up until that point. The Allied forces overwhelmed... The German beachhead. And overlord, it marked the beginning of the end of the war. And victory was assured. If any military strategist was diagnosing the situation and had Hitler and his strategist been diagnosing and looking at the overwhelming forces that were approaching them, coming at them, had breached their defenses, they would have realized the war was up. In fact, they did, but they didn't give up. Hitler continued to launch counterattack after counterattack. 
And, and actually, the, the bloodiest battle of the war happened after the Allies had already crossed the Seine into Germany. And, and yet, the bloodiest battle of the war, the Battle of the Bulge, occurred a few months later. And a couple hundred thousand people were, people were killed in that, really, that mop-up operation. It took about nine more months after Operation Overlord. The Nazis kept fighting to the bitter end. And the, and the Allied mop-up operation, it took nine months until they finally were completely defeated and surrendered in, in victory in Europe Day. The Japanese, they still hung on. They didn't officially surrender to August of 1945, even though the decisive victory had already been secured and it would have been wise to give up. They continued to fight and they fought bitterly. As Christians, we have a greater hope than the Allied forces did. You see, we have a king who has already conquered. He's already had the decisive, overwhelmingly decisive victory over all of our enemy forces. Jesus has already won the war, and yet, as Christians, we know that we still continue to battle. And, and so there's this bit of this, this seeming paradox of, well, the devil's been defeated, but yet he still harasses us. And and it's, it's kind of like Hitler didn't give up after he was even defeated until the bitter end. The devil is, is venting his spleen, if you will. He's, he, is, he is angrily attacking the children of God, even though the, the victory has been won. And we can be assured of that. We can have confidence in that. We have an overwhelmingly more powerful God. And he's already won the decisive victory. Colossians 2.15 tells us that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That is a, as a past event. In, in Revelation 12, it tells us of this great conflict. And it says, now war arose in heaven. And this is looking back. And it says, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And when the dragon saw, in verse 13, that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman this is the seed of Eve, who had given birth to the male child, Christ. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And here's who that offspring is. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So what Revelation is showing us is that the devil has already been cast down, already defeated, the decisive victory has been secured, and yet now he rages here on this earth and says... He became furious and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. And that's us who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. As Christians, when we encounter verses like this saying that we need to stand against the wiles of the devil, the first place we must start is that we have a defeated enemy and we have a, a, a powerful king in whom we, we can lack no confidence. He, we can put all of our trust, all of our hope, all of our confidence in him. The victory is ours. He's been defeated. But the devil continues to rage 
against those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And our battle, our real battle, it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against people here on the earth. It's not against governments. It's not against kingdoms here. It's against principalities and powers and the devil and his forces. And so when we encounter this passage, we're meant to see that on our own, we cannot fight the devil on our own. Sorry for the noise today, by the way. (laughs) On our own, we cannot fight the devil, but God has not left us alone. Not only has he given us his spirit, but he's given his divine armor to protect us. So as Christians, what's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to stand firm, but not stand firm on our own. To stand firm with his armor on us. And so really the main idea of the verses that we're focusing on is really just one thing. is that we must stand firm in God's armor. We must stand firm in God's armor to resist the devil. We don't stand firm in our own strength. We don't stand firm in our own ability, in our own armor, in our own protection. No, we stand firm in God's armor to resist the devil. Then in verses 14 to 17, the Apostle Paul, he details six different ways. If you look down to that, really there's, there's one overriding command that, that governs all of these verses, set 14 to 17, and that's stand firm, therefore. So really it's one main point, one main point for the pastors, and there's six ways that we're to stand firm underneath of that. So stand firm, therefore, and he talks about six different ways that we're to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. In verse 13, he talks about it. He says, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand. And I look back in verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. So, so far he's mentioned standing twice. Maybe he's driving a point home. And then to reiterate things, in the the latter part of verse 13, he says, that you may be able to withstand. And he says, having done all to stand firm. There's the third command, to stand. And now he says again in verse 14, stand therefore. You think Paul's getting at something here? We have a duty as believers. We have a privilege. We have the ability to be able to stand against all the wiles of the devil. We have no need to fear. We have no need to shrink back. We have no need to be afraid. But, and he's driving also, driving home the point that after you've made all the necessary preparations, after you've placed your faith and trust in God, after you realize who you are in him, we are called to active duty. We're called to stand. The kind of standing that Paul has in mind, it's not what you might see if you've ever been to the movie theater or been to the Hollywood 20 and you see a bunch of teenagers kind of like milling around nonchalantly standing there with their hands in the pockets kind of acting cool and stuff. That's not the kind of standing that we're, we're talking about here. And that's no slight if you're doing that. Uh, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not the kind of standing we're called to though. This is not an ambivalent, not a relaxed standing that we're being commanded to do. It has the implications of taking a stand of standing against, of being immovable in the face of the storm of the onslaught of the enemy, to not turn away, to not turn back, to continue to stand in the evil day. And the first way we're told to prepare to stand is this first piece of God's armor. So the big command, stand therefore in God's armor. How do you stand in God's armor? What does it look to stand in God's armor? How can you have confidence to stand in God's armor? Well, it's the first point is, is clear. It says we stand firm equipped with God's belt of truth. 
We stand firm. How? Equipped with God's belt of truth. Verse 14 says, Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. And for the Roman soldier, this was probably would have been this leather piece that, that hung down just below um, where the breastplate was. And it, and it covered from here all the way down to their thighs. It covered the vital parts of the soldier. And it, it allowed him to be confident in battle. And Paul uses this metaphor, this belt of truth, likely to refer both to the objective truth of God seen in, in the good news of Jesus Christ, but it's also truth that's seen in the lives of believers as they respond to that objective truth. So you see in Ephesians he's been talking about um, because you are now a new humanity in Christ Jesus, because that's who you are, put away falsehood. Put on the new man. Put on truthfulness. And so he's coming back to some of these major themes he's been talking about all throughout the letter. And some would say really that verses 10 through 20 you can see is, is almost a summary of all of the points he's been making in the letter. And he's putting it into a, a metaphor, a way that we can, we can see graphically. So in light of the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ and who we're called to be, we're called to actually put on truth as well. Now, let's just not put on the knowledge of truth. We're called to do that. But we're also called to actively be truthful. So it's, it's really both things. In the Septuagint version of the Bible that most of the New Testament authors used, I think the Apostle Paul was probably quoting from that in this passage. And, and there's a, a prophetic picture that of, from Isaiah of the Messiah. And here's what Isaiah says about the Messiah. He says, With righteousness shall he be girded around the waist. Like with a belt. Girded around the waist. And with truth bound around his sides. And so it's almost the idea that we have that same truth that Jesus had. And then Jesus took up that truth and lived truthfully as well. And so the rule of the Messiah, God's anointed one, the rule of his kingdom it's characterized by truth and righteousness. And now God has not just said, okay, take up your own truth. He says, no, take up my truth. Take up my armor of truth. Put on my belt of truth, the same armor that the Messiah wore into battle and wears. Take up as your own. Been given the very armor of God to put on. And think about that. Yeah, we can't stand on our own, but we've got God's armor. We've got the same armament that, that Jesus, when he was walking the earth as a man, he himself, the Messiah, put on this belt of truth. And it, and it held him. The implication for us is that we must take it up and put it on. Take up the truth of who God is and who God made us to be and apply it practically to our lives. Take the truth of who we are in Christ now because of the good news of Jesus and, and, and put it into effect in our lives. We put on this belt of truth as we live truly since we are now in Christ Jesus. Earlier in Ephesians 4.23, if you remember Paul, had told us that we were, we were to put on this new man. And he says in Ephesians 4.23-25, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, therefore having put away. So because we've been made new in truth, in righteousness and holiness, because we've been made new, we're to put away falsehood. He says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. When you don't speak the truth, you know it, don't you? Or at least the first few times you know it until maybe you've gotten convinced that 
that the lies you're telling are really true. I, I was that way when I was a teenager. I, I got so practiced at deception that I, I, I kind of believe my own lies a little bit. But generally when we don't tell the truth, we know it. And what's the effect on you? The effect is that you become, you become weak and ineffective. You become less of a credible witness to the truth. When you're aware that you're not living truthfully. You may, cover, you may lie to cover up your weaknesses. Maybe you don't practice big lies as a Christian. You just practice the little ones. And you don't admit when you fail or when you fall or when you have weaknesses or when you mess up. Or somebody says, you know, hey, you know, honey, why don't you take the trash out? Oh, I didn't, I didn't hear you. Or, <laughs> or I forgot. Or whatever it is. We can, we can make up little, little lies because, because we realize, oh, I don't want to acknowledge that I've actually failed or I've done something wrong. You know, no, really. I, I tried to call you. I, I must have dialed the wrong number. I just, I don't know what happened. Or maybe when your kids, you know, bring the phone to you and you're like, I'm not here. <laughs> I was just about to call you back. Or, or maybe when you're running late, you make up a story that's not exactly true, no harm done. It, it contained a little bit of the truth, and you just kind of stretched it a little bit. You ever done that? We've, I think a lot of us have done that. <laughs> maybe you lie about your income and your taxes because everybody does it. It's acceptable, isn't it? Because after all, the government isn't looking out for us. We've got to look out for ourselves. Because the government's corrupt. So it's okay for us to be a little bit corrupt. Giving into falsehood, though, giving into lies, it, it, it's living as if you are still the old man. Maybe you lie to your boss, your coworkers, your classmates. Maybe you lied to hide that you don't agree with them on some moral or social issue. And you nod your head in assent, acting like you are agreeing. Or maybe your lies are more subtle endorsements of sin or laughing at crude or sexual or racist comments. Why is it important to have a belt of truth around you? It's, it's to protect your internals from problems. It's to hold your whole witness together. And if we're not girded with a belt of truth around us and putting on not only God's truth, but then proactively saying, uh, the application of the fact that who I am in Christ Jesus is a new creation. Because I'm a new creation, now I'm going to live in truth as he lived in truth. If we don't live like that, it, it destroys our witness. We become ineffective soldiers. When you lie, your conscience might bother you. And as a result, you might not speak up for the truth when you should. And maybe you lack confidence in Christ because you're aware of your own lies. We become callous and hardened by your own piles of lies. No, No longer affected. No longer convicted. No longer useful for Christ. Take up, take up the belt of truth. Think about it for a moment. Why do we lie? Why do we lie? Well, I think sometimes we lie because we think it'll, it'll get us something. It'll benefit us in some way. Maybe we think it'll keep us out of trouble. I, I know that with our kids, we're constantly working on this. You know, I wasn't going to give you a consequence, but now that you've lied, you really will because you need to know that, that lying doesn't keep you from trouble. It actually gets you in more trouble. It says something about our hearts that we think we can get away that God doesn't see. Sometimes we lie because we want to hide who we really are. Because inside we, we feel like losers. We feel like we're inadequate. We feel like we're not good enough. Maybe we think 
if we lie, then people won't see us for our failings. They won't see us for who we really are. And we, maybe we fear that they'll reject us. And so we lie to avoid rejection. Maybe you've ever done that? You don't have to raise your hand. But you ever done that? You ever lie to avoid rejection? Because you don't want people to think badly of you. So maybe you're in a small group here in church and, and somebody asks you a question and you just kind of give us a little half-truth because you don't want to see just how terrible you are. Or maybe you do something different. And you just say, well, they're saying, hey, anybody struggling with anything? Yeah, well, I'm struggling with, uh, um, I didn't read my Bible this morning. And so, you know, you give them one little area because you don't want them to see really what's going on in your heart and, and the areas you're really struggling in. So you just kind of, you put up a front, okay, I, I'll admit some sins that I don't have to admit this one because I really don't want them to see that. Sometimes we lie to control and manipulate other people. It makes us feel more powerful, but that's an illusion. The reality is that when we try to lie to manipulate people, it means we're not strong enough to stand on our own merit and we have to get, use smoke and mirrors to get people to like us, to respect us. But if we put on the truth of God and the good news of Jesus Christ, it will protect us. You can put away falsehood. What's the remedy if you've found yourself lying? It's easy. In 1 John it says, if you confess your sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and make us clean from all unrighteousness. He already died for all of those sins that you've committed of lying, of half-truths. He already died for that before you ever did that. What you can do now is put away falsehood. Say, God, because you are, because you have given me your truth, I'm gonna take up your belt of truth. I'm gonna put on the new man. Applying the truth that we're a new humanity in Christ, it means that we don't have to live for this world's approval. Isn't that good news? We don't have to live for the approval of other people. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus. We've been adopted in God. What can man do to us now? We can live truthfully before God, not lying to get the approval of a world we are no longer members of. Why do you want to impress people who are just going to hell? Applying the truth to the good news means we remember that we are accepted by God and that he's the sovereign ruler of all, the only judge who matters and controls our eternal destiny. We're accepted because of who Jesus was and is, not because of who we are. That's how we can apply the truth of the gospel to our lives. Reason is good for us to know is it means that when we're weak, when we fail, when you mess up, when we give in, when we don't live up to our potential, and we all don't. We don't need to fear the rejection of God. We've been forgiven and accepted in Christ. We can draw near to God's mighty throne and find mercy and grace in time of need. Even when other people may not look favorably on us, the truth of our forgiveness in Jesus applied means that we're no longer condemned. We can freely confess our sins because why? They've already been paid for. God already said they were so bad I had to send my son. There's no way that we can be intimidated that they're going to get worse. What's the worst that can be said? Our sins were so bad that God had to send his son to die for us. And he's forgiven us. We don't have to live a lie any longer, not fearing God's punishment instead. Experience his grace and his approval. The truth of God says that he's in control in every and any circumstance you face, any hardship, any trial, any difficulty. He's for his children. He'll ultimately take care of his children. So why? Why does it affect us? Well, we don't need to lie to control the people. Why? Because he's in control and we can trust in him. That's, that's practically applying, putting on that belt of truth. Strengthened by the truth of God and Jesus as we 
live in truthfulness in every area of our lives. It will enable us to resist those lies of the devil. And believe me, the devil is constantly lying. You need the belt of God's truth. Jesus actually called him the father of lies. But as we put on the belt of truth, we deny him to have any room for influence in our lives. The belt of truth, it's good armor, it's safe armor, it's trustworthy, but it's not the only armor we're given. Look down in your Bibles. It says, having put on what? The breastplate of righteousness. So really the second point just comes right out of the text here. It says we stand firm. Equipped with God's what? Breastplate of righteousness. We stand firm. How do we stand firm? Equipped with God's breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate for the first century Roman soldier would have been a piece of armor that covered all the way up from his neck down to his waist. It would protect him from blows to his chest and piercing arrows and the longbow. I like, I like reading novels. So a lot of my illustrations come out of what I've read in the past and hopefully you all have, have heard of a story at least by Tolkien called The Hobbit. And in, in The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, he's given this, this chain mail from the treasury of Smog or however you pronounce the dragon's name. He's given this chain mail and he wears it in a few battles but then later on he gives it to his nephew Frodo. And then in The Lord of the Rings... Those three books. Frodo wears this chainmail, but he wears it underneath of his tunic so nobody knows he's wearing it. His friends don't even know he has it on. And it's this enchanted, cha- enchanted chainmail. And, and then later he's in a battle in, somewhere in the mines of Moria or something like that. And, and this orc throws a spear at him and all of his friends think that he's lost. And he lies down as if he was dead. But then he gets up and he's completely fine. And this, this chainmail, this this armor for his chest, this, this breastplate, it had protected him from death. If you are a part of the fellowship, the true fellowship of Jesus Christ, then you are on a mission. And the mission that all of us fellow soldiers are on, it's a mission where we're constantly under attack. Even though we can't see our deadly foes, they're all around us. They're more real and more clever than any troll, more powerful than any orc in Tolkien's mythical creations. But we dare not stand against those forces unprotected or the spear would pierce us. We have to have armor to protect our vital organs and the armor that God gives us is not a mythical armor. It's the righteousness of Christ Jesus. He's given us, he says, I'm going to declare you righteous in reality because Jesus was righteous. It's, I'm going to take Christ's righteousness and, and see that as you are wearing that righteousness. It belongs to you now. That doesn't mean we're actually righteous. Now we have to put on actual righteousness. So I think this, this verse talks about both things. Not only put on Christ's righteousness to protect us, but also actively because we have his righteousness, live it out Our hearts are vulnerable to attack, to the attacks of the enemy that say that we are not righteous. You ever had attacks like that? That we're not good enough, you're not accepted, you're not really qualified to stand before God. And if you are not wearing Christ's righteousness, that spear will pierce your heart. Sap you of strength and vitality and make you feel unable and unworthy to go and do your mission to represent God because we don't feel like we can 
And there's another danger that we face as well as Christians if we don't wear God's breastplate of righteousness. So one is that we face the danger of thinking we are completely unable to stand before God. The other one is thinking that we're able to stand before God on our own righteousness. But you see, our armor does no good. It's like wearing paper. If we try to stand before God on the basis of our own right living, we will be rightly condemned and have great reason to fear God and His wrath. Paul told us in Romans 3.10, he says, As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's no way that we can stand on our own righteousness. It's like trying to stand in paper before flames. The story of David and Goliath, David was a young shepherd boy. He was up against a giant man who stood over nine feet tall. I was trying to put this in context, thinking about just how tall this dude was. Well, he's, to help you out, he's, he's two feet taller than Dikembe Mutombo. I can't know how to pronounce his name. The guy who shows up on all those Geico commercials now says, not in my house, you know, that guy. Um, <laughs> Goliath was two feet taller than him, talking about an intimidating foe. Everybody was afraid of him. No one dared to face him. But what did David do? He, he didn't choose to trust in man's armor. He put aside Saul's armor and it was offered. He trusted in God. He was effectively taking up God's armor. And he chose to trust in God to deliver him and go out against Goliath. And he defeated the foe, trusting in God. But, but here's the real story, is that the picture of David is a, it's, it's a true story, but it's also a prophetic picture of, of Christ, the true anointed one, the true Messiah, the fulfillment of all of our hopes. In, in Jesus, he faced a bigger foe than Goliath, a taller foe than Goliath. He's faced the giants of our sin. The giant of our sin was too much for us to deal with. The giant of condemnation, the wrath of God, it's too much for us to face. The giant of Satan and his evil forces are too much for us on our own. But here's the good news. Jesus has defeated every foe with his own righteousness. He was perfect and he perfectly earned God's favor. He took all of our sins on himself on the cross. He defeated the devil. He made a show of the devil openly. Death could not hold him. He was resurrected. Now he stands before God victorious, having won the victory through his righteous living and his righteous acts, through his death as he paid the penalty, as he was risen for us. And God says that we can have the righteousness of God now for ourselves. That's, that's no mere human righteousness. It's, it's the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So we can have confidence to come before God, to come into the Holy of Holies as we read about way back in Hebrews. No one can enter into God's presence, but now we can enter in His presence because why? We have the righteousness of God. It's also armor to protect us against the assaults of the devil that tells us you're not good enough. You can say, yeah, you're right. I'm not good enough, but I don't have to be good enough. I've got somebody else's righteousness on and he was more than good enough. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be afraid of you because I know I'm not wearing my own righteousness here. We can stand against any defeated foe 
And that righteousness in Romans 3.22 says that it comes by faith in Christ Jesus now for all who believe. But for us, the danger is, why do we need to take up this righteousness? Because we have, a, we have temptation to trusting in our own righteousness. But we must put on the righteousness of God by faith. Renounce any trust in our own ability and be, be right before God in Christ. We must renounce any trust of our own worth if we're to wear Christ's worth. Not take any confidence in our own achievements and our own righteousness if we want to earn, as if we could earn favor before God because we never could. In our battle against evil, one of the key ways the devil and the evil one try to defeat us and to make us ineffective witnesses is, is to make us like the world. So not only are we to put our trust and our hope in God's righteousness, we are to actively seek to be like him, to put on the new man in righteousness. If we're no longer salty, then we won't preserve the fallen sinful world around us. If we're no longer light, then we won't shine to dispel the darkness. If we are unrighteous in our actions, we won't be attractive witnesses to the grace of God to change the fallen, sinful, self-centered, lost people into his image. If you lack integrity, if we're not living righteously because of his righteousness, then you're also probably going to feel condemned, despondent, and discouraged. Of the verse that came this morning, there's no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have put on the righteousness of Christ for those who are living in Christ's righteousness actively. Otherwise, our hearts can be attacked as for us to believe that in some way we can be good enough. And this, this wound of pride, it keeps us from trusting in the righteousness of God, from putting on his armor. Or when we fail, it can make us feel like there's no hope and we might as well give up. You see, the effect of trusting in our own righteousness, eventually you're going to fail and you see that your righteousness is not trustworthy and so you're going to become despondent and despair, discouraged, depressed and really that's pride because you're putting your trust in your ability. What's the remedy? The remedy is repent. Confess your sin. Put on his righteousness and put it on with confidence. Take up the armor. It's waiting for you to take it up. God's already given it to you. He doesn't say earn it. He says it's there. I've given it. Take it up. It's a gift. Take it up. It's a gift. Put it on. Put on the new self. We put on this breastplate by trusting in that not guilty verdict that God has given us. We trust in the divine acquittal of God from all of our crimes, not because we're not guilty, but because Jesus paid for all of them himself. And this righteousness is meant to cover our hearts because you know when you mess up. Cover your hearts with the righteousness of Christ and say, God does not view me like that. He's made me righteous. He's made me into his image. The next piece of armor that we've been given is to put on, is to be put on like shoes. Look in verse 15 and it says, as shoes for your feet. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The third point that we're going to look at is that we stand firm. How? How do we stand firm? Stand firm, therefore, how? Equipped with God's gospel shoes. Equipped with God's gospel shoes. Let the good news of Jesus Christ 
Be like shoes to you so that it guides you every step of the way. Every step you take in life is to be a step taken in the good news of the gospel of peace. Peace with God that you now have. And it's also a gospel that's meant you to carry out that peace to other people. Think of yourself as a believer. Every morning you're getting up and putting on my gospel shoes. What does that mean? It means that every step I take in life, I need my feet to be equipped. Everywhere I go, I can't go far from the gospel. The gospel must go with me every step of the way to protect me, to guide me. I must carry it with me everywhere I go. It's not something you leave behind or leave at home. If you're going to stand your ground and fight in warfare, you have to have secure footing. The warfare that, that would have occurred in the first century. This is not a distant warfare. This is, this is not where the Air Force comes in and strafes everybody and, and then you come in and you kind of mop things up. This is a hand-to-hand combat. And that's, that's the picture of the Christian life. This is not some distant thing. It's close. It's close combat. You need to stand your ground and have secure footing. So I was trying to think, what's the closest equivalent we had today of these these shoes? What would these gospel shoes have been like? And so as weak as it is, I was, you know, thinking about the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago. Had Marshawn Lynch. He's pushing forward. He's running back in football. He's using, what is he using? He's using cleats to dig in and to push. It's one of the strengths that he has in, in football. He's, he may not be as fast as some guys, but he can, he can push against. When he has people on him, he can push against them. How does he do that? Well, he has shoes, as, as most people do, most football players do. He's got shoes that have cleats that dig into the ground that allow him to stand firm. If he didn't, he'd be slipping all over the place. You ever tried playing football in your tennis shoes against a bunch of guys who are wearing cleats? It's not very good. You slip and fall. Well, there was an elite Roman soldier that Paul would have been aware of. And, and he was, the reason he was aware of him is Paul was probably chained to a soldier as he wrote this passage. And so Paul was looking over at him and, and his picture is coming to him of, we have an armor that's far better than that. And maybe he talked to the Roman soldiers and he asked them, how do you do battle? And they said, well, when we go into battle, we have these special boots that we put on that we strap around our, our ankles and we strap up to our, our shins. And, and on the bottom of these shoes, these, they have nails going down into the ground. These special kinds of, of boots for warfare. And they had nails. And so when they would stand against the enemy with their shield up and they would be able to move forward and press against the foe and they'd be able to physically press against the army that was right there as they pushed against them with these, these shoes that have nails, these cleats on them. It enabled them to be firm and press forward in hand-to-hand combat. And so what's, what's the picture that we have here? It's that we're to press forward. We will have foes all around us. We will have foes upon us. But we can press forward if we're equipped with the good news of the gospel. It enables us to press forward against the enemy. It gives us firm footing in battle. It allows us to stand firm. And you think about where are our feet? They're at the bottom. Duh, right? Um, it's, it's a foundation the gospel is meant to be the foundation of everything that we do. We don't have to leave it behind in any way. It's the good news of Jesus that we're forgiven, we're redeemed, we've been adopted in him. We're now children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We stand on the good news of Christ knowing that he's already been victorious. That's the good news. The good news lets us know that all who trust in him will live and, and, and never die. 
The good news is that we who once were enemies of God have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus and been reconciled to God. Now we can come into his presence cleansed and made righteous and made whole. But it's more than all that too. The scripture says, having put on the readiness. That implies that we're to be ready to give the gospel. We're to be ready to go places with the gospel. We're to constantly be ready with the gospel of peace. In Isaiah 52, 7, and in this passage, Paul is referencing Isaiah quite a lot. He's probably referencing Isaiah 52, 7, where it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Putting on gospel shoes, being ready with the gospel of peace, it implies taking the gospel with you, being like that messenger in Isaiah who's carrying out the good news. How beautiful are the feet of him who carries out good news, who publishes peace. I love that picture. It's like a newspaper getting published. Who publishes peace, who makes peace known. And this is not the the kind of peace that was declared in the 60s and 70s. This isn't disarmament. This is, this is the peace that we have with God. That we who were once were God's enemies now have peace with him through the good news of Jesus Christ. He's reconciled God and man. It means sharing the gospel of peace with those who are not at peace with God. Our battle is not against the people we're around who aren't at peace with God. It's against the evil that's influencing them. How do we fight? We take the gospel of peace to the people who have been influenced by evil. It means we take a stand and fight against the enemy ironically by living and proclaiming the gospel of peace. It's a weapon in our armament. <laughs> the gospel of peace is how we battle evil that seeks to bring discord and the, the lack of peace with God. It's not just standing against evil. It's doing battle with the gospel of peace. And it says that the gospel is the power of God. Think about that. The gospel is the power of God. When you are sharing the good news with somebody else, do you realize you're sharing not just words, you're sharing the very power of God with them for their salvation? And it's the power of God to break the forces of darkness, to break through every stronghold, to deliver those who are trapped in sin and darkness. And the gospel shines the light of Jesus into the darkness, and from him the darkness flees. The gospel gives us peace with God every step of the way as we're secure in his good news, and we, because of that, can share the good news. Then look at verse 16. It says, in all circumstances, take up what? In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In all circumstances. What this is saying is that at every point in time in your Christian life, you don't have the luxury of being able to drop your faith. You must actively, in every circumstance, in all circumstances, take up faith. Why? Because you will be tempted to drop your faith. You'll be tempted to have no faith. You'll be tempted instead to trust your feelings, to trust your own ability, to trust other people, circumstances, situations, income, whatever. And he's saying in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Why? Because they are constantly coming at you, 
These flaming arrows, it's a picture of war when you're assaulting the gates of hell and hell's minions are shooting flaming arrows at you constantly. That's a picture of our lives as believers. And he's saying in all circumstances, don't put it down. Why? Because when you begin to drop your faith, those arrows pierce your heart. And so the fourth point that we see is that we stand firm, always equipped with God's shield of faith. We stand firm, always equipped with God's shield of faith. Of faith, those those flaming darts here are those 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 pitch. They would dip these arrows in pitch, and they would light them on fire. And so there's this roiling, flaming mess coming at us. And as the projectiles, the devil is constantly shooting at us. What are some of those flaming arrows? It's these flaming arrows of sometimes unmet desires. Flaming darts of anger and bitterness and resentment that lodge in your chest and don't seem to go out. What's the remedy? Take up the shield of faith saying, no, there is hope. I can forgive because I've been forgiven. I don't have to be resentful and angry. I'm going to trust not in my own ability, but I'm going to trust in, in faith to forgive. Those burning darts when other Christians disappoint us when we're tempted to feel like that's how God is. But we can hold up that shield of faith. We can extinguish the flame by believing that God is who he says he is and trusting that he will never leave us or forsake us no matter what. Even though these arrows are are hailing down upon us. You can have flaming darts of regret that seem to cut us to the core. But we hold up the shield of faith in our great Redeemer who has removed all of our shame and made us righteous in His sight and He's removed regret. The flaming missile of condemnation that tells us we'll never be good enough. We can hold up the shield of faith and say, yes, we're we're never good enough. But He was. And I don't have to be. And that's good news. And that's where my trust, my hope, my confidence is. You see, all these pieces of the armor, they're intricately related. And the shield of faith, is, it, it, it works together with every piece of the armor. Faith in the gospel. Faith in the breastplate of righteousness. Faith in salvation. Faith in the sword of the Spirit. In all circumstances. Roman warriors that would have carried these, these large wooden shields would have been enough to cover their entire body and on the outside normally would have been some kind of fabric and animal skins and what they would do is they soak these shields overnight in water and so when it came time for battle they'd be dripping wet and they'd be soaking so these flaming darts would be extinguished and, and so that's probably the picture that Paul has in his mind and he, he probably has in his mind because in the Old Testament so often God is spoken of as what? As our shield. God is our Shield in Psalm, Psalm 35, 30 verse 5. I'm sorry, Proverbs 30 verse 5. He says that he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So it's not just our shield. It's the shield of God. It's the shield of the faith that he gives to us. The shield of faith in him. And so in this verse, we take up God's shield of faith. We lay hold of his power in the face of the attacks of the devil and his forces. We can hold on to God confidently knowing he'll protect us in battle. If the warrior failed to remember to dip his water, his shield in the water, to soak it overnight, he'd go out in the battle, and that flame might stick into the, into the shield, and the, the fabric on the outside might catch on fire, and he would begin to doubt and think, that's hot, I should drop it. But if he drops it, those arrows would penetrate. 
We've been given a better shield than that. We've been given a shield that's being constantly refreshed by, by, by Jesus who is living water. We, we can take up this shield of faith in him that is constantly refreshed and renewed. It will never go out if we put our faith not in our own faith, not in our own ability, but we put our faith in him. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never fail. He is always faithful even when we are faithless. The Apostle Peter tells us that the devil is roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The devil's scheming. He's trying to tempt us to think that we can only be satisfied with sex or money or fame or a family or a job. Maybe you don't have a job. You don't have family. Maybe you don't have money and, and, and maybe you're wanting sex. But we take up the shield of faith. And trust that God is the one who satisfies us. None of those things satisfy. We can find contentment in him by faith. And resist those flaming arrows of lust. And the devil seeks to attack us in the place of our, our faith primarily. That's why it says in every circumstance, take up the shield of faith. Why? Because that is the primary way the devil seeks to attack us. To get us to drop our shield. To make us doubt that God's good to us. To doubt that God's strong enough. To doubt that God loves us personally. Or maybe to think that God doesn't want what's best for us. That he's left us. But we can have faith in God knowing he's in control. He's over all things. The devil is subject to him and is at his beck and call. He's God's devil as Luther said. God knows what's best for us. He loves his children like Jesus. He wants what's best for us. He's like he wanted what was best for Jesus when he walked the earth. He's able to do what's best for us and we can trust in him. Take up the shield of faith. We aren't called to do some weird way of spiritual warfare. Try to figure out what spirit is this that's assaulting us. That's not what spiritual warfare is about. We're not trying to name demons here. There's nowhere in the Bible that tells us to do that. The best defense against the devil, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 9, is to resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We resist the devil by standing firm in the faith, firmly trusting in God despite the roars of the evil one. The apostle James says that when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. We don't need special water or weird incantations. <laughs> but by faith we resist the devil, trusting God that he will flee from us, that the devil will flee from us. Next, we're told to take up in verse 17, it says, the helmet of salvation. And there's really just two brief points before we close. Take up the helmet of salvation. Fifth way that we're stand firm is that we stand firm equipped with God's helmet of salvation. Our enemy seeks to assail us, to attack our minds. But we have the helmet of our king to protect us. And this helmet would have, would have not only protected up here, it would have come all the way around in Isaiah 59, 17, we see that Yahweh, he is seen as the victorious warrior. He wears his helmet of salvation. The same words used here. In this helmet, the helmet of God's great salvation, we're called to take it up. Take the helmet of salvation that, that Yahweh wears. Remind ourselves of who you are in Christ. Remind ourselves of our eternal security. Back in Ephesians 2, it reminded us that we've been made alive in Christ and raised up with him and seated along with him in the heavenly places, saved by his grace. He's rescued those who trust in him from death, from slavery, from bondage to sin. 
He's rescued us from wrath that we deserved. He's delivered us out of darkness and now we're seated with him on high. Taking up this helmet of salvation, it means we live confidently the fact that we belong to Jesus, the King now. Living confidently in our union with him. The position of power and authority that we have as we're one with Christ, it's, it says it's far above every evil power. Lastly, we're not just called to defense, but in addition to carrying the message of the gospel of peace, we're to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We talked about Scripture a few weeks back. Scripture is a, is a weapon. It's our hope for truth. It's our hope for being able to interpret who are we, who is God. The sword... The word for sword here refers to the Roman machaira. It was a, it was a short-handled, double-edged sword. It was meant for close combat, so you could, you could not only swing, but you could thrust with it and pull it out and do it again. It's been given, we've been given this double-edged sword, like Scripture says, this sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce the division of soul and spirit. And notice it says, not the sword of humanity, it says the sword of the spirit. The Spirit's the one who empowers his word and makes it effective. And we take it up. We take it up by using it when we face temptation, by sharing his word with those who are in bondage, trusting that it will cut through any shackle. It will deliver from evil. Take up the armor of our victorious king. We don't have any, any fear of any foe. We can stand firm against the scheming, the attacks of the evil one. As we close, I want you to ask yourself if there's an area where you've let God's armor sit. Have you let God's armor sit? God's given you his armor. Have you let it sit? Have you taken up the belt of God's truth? Are you closing yourself with truth? Are you refusing to listen to lies of the devil about who you are, about who God is, and instead listening to what God says about you? As you stand in his truth, are you walking in truthfulness? Are you condemned or discouraged or ashamed and put aside trust in your own righteousness and put on the breastplate of righteousness where there's no condemnation or shame and there's great hope? Are you confidently walking in the good news of Jesus Christ or are you taking the gospel of peace everywhere you go? Confident you have peace with God and taking his peace to the people. Are you troubled with doubts and unbelief? Take up the shield of faith and extinguish all those darts. Are you protecting your head? Are you confident in your salvation when the devil says that you're not really a Christian because you keep sinning? No, I've been saved. Are you taking up the helmet of salvation to protect your thoughts? Are you taking up God's word and, and practicing it every day so that you can be good with it? So that you can use that sword you've been given? We take up God's armor knowing that he's already won the decisive victory. But also aware that this mop-up operation that we've been called to, it's bloody, it's messy, a dangerous foe is still roaming the battlefield even though the, the victory's been won. As we close, I want to read to you the words of Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And then we'll pray and be done. Listen to these words. A mighty fortress is our God, a trusty shield and weapon. He helps us free from every need that hath us now overtaken. The old evil foe now means deadly woe. Deep guile and great might are his dread arms in fight. On earth is not as equal. With might of ours we cannot 
Naught can be done. Soon were our loss affected. But for us fights the valiant one whom God himself elected. Ask ye who is this? And he goes down, Jesus Christ it is, and there's none other God. He holds the field forever. Though devils all the world should fill, Pausing for that musical interlude. Though devils all the world should fill, all eager to devour us. We tremble not. We fear no ill. They shall not overpower us. The world's prince may still scowl fierce as he will. He can harm us none. He's judged. The deed is done. One little word can fell him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've not left us alone, that you've given us your divine armor to protect us. Lord, I pray that you would enable all of us to take up your armor.